In one of her letters, the little flower, that's St. Therese of the Child Jesus, states, quote, I love to read the lives of the saints very much. The count of their heroic deeds inflames my courage and spurs me on to imitate them, close quote. So today we'll spend a few minutes telling the story of a little-known spiritual daughter of St. Therese whose life was filled with heroic deeds. For the most part, it's a paraphrase taken from a Carmelite work entitled Love Can Do All. On August 15, 1879, Elena Maria Terreri, the second youngest of 20 children, now there is a Catholic family. We wouldn't have any of this fortnight for freedom stuff if we had more families like that. Elena Maria Terry, the second youngest of 20 children, was born in Mexico to a devout family of European extraction. At the age of 18, she decided to enter into a teaching order. While she was traveling on the train to the convent, a young nun passed by her, then turned back, looked at her intently, and said, You will remain there a short time. Then you'll be a Carmelite. Alina Marina thought to herself, how strange for her to tell me something like that. After a few years, she was dismissed from the teaching order, and in 1904 sought to enter the Carmel in Mexico City. She saw a picture hanging on the wall, and to her very great surprise, it was the exact nun she had seen on the train. She was told it was a French Carmelite, named Sister Therese, the Child Jesus of the Holy Face, who was already well-known because of her autobiography and the miracles worked through intercession. The day Elena Maria had seen her on the train, September 30, 1897, was the exact day that Sister Therese had died far, far away in France. Elena Maria was given the name of Mary, Mary Elias of the Blessed Sacrament, in December of 1908, she was sent, along with Mother Teresa Maria, the Mac of Conception, Mother Bernard of the Holy Spirit, from Mexico City to the Carmel and Querétaro. This Carmel began to thrive, and in December of 1912, the sisters elected Sister Elias Prius, Prioress. She was a mystic. The souls in purgatory frequently visited her. For example, Senor Don Gerardo de la Torre, now that was the father of one of the nuns, Mother Teresa Maria, visited Mother Elias and told her that he was now freed from purgatory because of the prayers of his daughter and for having founded that new convent in Querétaro for the greater glory of God and the good of souls. Other poor souls would visit her and ask her to share her terrible pains that she might offer them up in expiation to God. But it wasn't just the poor souls that would visit her. The demons also paid calls and persecuted her and tormented her horribly to the point where they'd leave her as one dead. On one occasion, she was uh, very sick and in a wheelchair, and one of the nuns saw the wheelchair just racing along, and they said, Mother, where do you want to go? She said, I'm not doing this. It was, they, you know, it's the devil. They're, they're trying to throw her down a staircase or something, so they go over there and grab the wheelchair and keep her from launching off to wherever they were going to throw her. In May 1914, the revolutionary armies were closing in on Querétaro. In order to prevent atrocities to the religious, the vicar general of the diocese ordered the nuns to dissolve the convent, to assume disguises, and seek refuge with families. 
Mother Teresa turned to Mother Elias and asked, Now what should we do? No one has shoes or dresses. They're discalced. Mother Elias answered irreverently, Never mind, God will provide. Provide when everything is so expensive and we have not a penny. What are we going to do? Mother dear, don't worry. God will provide. And going up to the attic, Mother Elias brought down shoes, dresses, and wigs. For some time, on advice of her confessor, Mother Elias had been acquiring shoes and dresses while they were still available and cheap and hiding them in the attic without saying a word to anyone. And she'd gone so far as to have the sisters secretly make wigs from the novices' hair, you know, because they have their hair cut. And uh, so they take the novices' hair and make wigs. I guess nowadays they'd call her a prepper. When they received the order to dissolve, the sisters recognized it as a punishment. They said, this is a punishment for our lukewarmness. Let us now embrace the cross. And they offered it up for their beloved nation. They only got to mass or confession occasionally. Each nun remained clothed in her habit, but wore a secular dress on top in spite of the discomfort and heat. And they're a whole lot closer to the equator than we are. The greater part of the community stayed in a house belonging to the mother of one of the nuns with the rest found haven in other homes. In June 1914, the day before the revolutionary forces entered Cuerritaro, Mother Elias left Mother Teresa's prioress there and took a number of young professed nuns and postulants to Aguas Calientes in the hopes of finding a convent there. Back in Cuerritaro, Mother Teresa had to separate the sisters and keep them moving from house to house ahead of the revolutionaries. Mother Elias asked permission of Rome to move the whole community to Aguas Calientes and then on to Cuba if needs be. Mother Elias returned to Cuerritaro to help remove the remaining sisters, but was arrested and imprisoned for three days. Although many other religious remained detained, she managed to obtain her freedom by offering money to the soldier who was supposed to guard her. By the early fall of 1914, the whole community was reunited in Aguas Calientes, and the Carmelites resumed their life of prayer and recollection. But the revolution continued to spread through Mexico. And as a parenthetical note, to give you an idea of what was going on during the revolution, it's incredible the suffering that the faith went through, and more particularly the priests and religious. It was very similar to the days of the catacombs. Whole families were shot in their homes the crime of saying the rosary together. Priests were shot on being found administering the sacraments, and any priest who attempted to do so knew that it was at the risk of his own life. Some priests were taken prisoner and then made to, to raise their own ransom among the poor who venerated them. Some elderly priests tied behind horses and drugged to death. Women of the night dressed in religious habits like nuns to discredit the Catholic Church. Revolutionaries, disguised as priests, offered mass, blaspheming God as they did so. In testimony given six years later, and I am leaving out the worst, Mother Elias stated, and I quote, At that time, I myself saw many things the Carranza soldiers, the revolutionaries did. We had to go from place to place in caring for the nuns to keep them from taking the nuns up in the hills with the soldiers. When they took possession of a city, right away they took the keys of the churches, and they said the government was the owner of the churches. The soldiers took the ciboria and emptied the contents, the sacred hosts, into the oats for the horses. They would take the vestments, put them on the horse's neck, use them for saddle blankets. 
They shot the tabernacles in almost every church. There was no place, no town where there's not that kind of profanation in every place, everywhere. I saw many times how they burned up the confessional. I saw in a church where the most blessed sacrament was exposed, hundreds of men come and shoot the monstrance and then disappear. The confessionals and some images of the saints have been burned in the public squares to the accompaniment of bands of music and impious speeches. They profane the churches, entering them on horseback, smashing the images, treading the relics underfoot, throwing the hosts about on the floor, and even giving them the horses to eat with the fodder. In some churches, the Karanzistas themselves have pretended to say Mass and seated themselves to hear the confessions of a multitude of people. Dressed as priests, they've heard the confessions of sick people, and then in derision revealed what they heard in the confession. All these things I've seen with my own eyes. All the communities of nuns have been expelled from the entire republic, being given but a half an hour to leave, not allowed to take with them a change of clothes, and in many cases, not even a breviary to pray. Many sisters have been taken to the barracks and police stations where their vows of chastity were in great danger. Immorality has increased to such a degree they have profaned not only virgins but have violated nuns, carrying them away by force where they now suffer horribly. To the great suffering of my soul, I have seen in Mexico the sad and lamentable fate of many sisters who have been victims of the unbridled passions of the soldiers. In general, many young girls, after having been forced to live with the revolutionaries, have been thrown out, and many have been killed in the street as though they were animals. Close quotes, Mother Elias of the Blessed Sacrament. On one occasion, Mother Elias overcame her fear of being kicked by a horse to rescue hosts tossed into its feed. She did not hesitate either to pick up chalices in front of soldiers. Dead and crooked from being thrown against stones, these chalices were brought to her sisters, who spent whole nights weeping in front of these sacred vessels, seeking to make reparation for the outrages which our Lord, in his divine sacrament of love, had suffered for us sinners. Mother Teresa had full confidence in Mother Elias to obtain any necessity for the community and placed Mother Mother Elias under obedience as long as she was out and about to save as many chalices and saboria as she possibly could, even at the risk of her life. Think about the value that the saints place on the holy things. Day by day, things grew still worse. The persecution of religious was such that it could be found no safe to hide them, no safe place to hide them. After hiding the young sisters in chests and cupboards, mother would keep vigil until dawn, guarding the door of the enclosure. At one point, mother lies spent 22 nights sitting in the door, guarding the sisters and praying to God, do not let these men touch thy virgins. Many times she had recourse to the servant of God, Sister Therese of the Child Jesus, for protection. St. Therese hadn't been canonized yet. One day, several statues were to be burnt in the public square, so a group of pious women had agonized the night before as how to save them and decided to ask Mother Elias for help. She advised him to go to the governor for a repeal of the order. He's a man who had forsaken his Catholic faith and joined the revolution less from political beliefs than from a desire to support his family. Led by the disguised Mother Elias, the women braved soldiers and insults to obtain an interview with the governor. He refused their plea, telling him it was too late to withdraw his order, not even for the love of his own mother. Mother Elias then asked, My governor, would you allow me or anyone else to burn the picture of your mother, your wife, or children, and not feel anything? 
The governor placed his hand on his sword and replied, If anyone should attempt that, I would kill them in an instant. My governor, Mother Elias asked, one word more. You were raised a Catholic. You revere the statues, and you know what they represent. Would you please, for the sake of your children, withdraw your order? Or if not, burn me with the statues. So the governor relented, and he wrote the order to prevent the burning of the statues. The woman thanked the governor kindly, and he accompanied them as far as the steps, and shaking hands with them, promised that if at any time they were in need of help, he was ready to oblige them. Two weeks later, he gave the command that the superioress of any Catholic institution should present herself to the court in the distinctive and complete habit of her order. As prioress of the new foundation in Aguas Calientes, Mother Elias left her little flock to join three other superiors of different orders on their way to comply with this new command. The Carmelites wondered if they'd ever see her again. The four superiors were interrogated at length by the same governor. Death seemed certain. While the judge questioned others, Mother Elias prayed to Little Flower. The questions were under oath, and Mother did not know what to answer, nor could she deny the existence of the Carmel. At last, when the governor interrogated her, he looked at Mother Elias very steadily and said, Madam, I think I met you before. My governor, it is only two weeks since I came to this very place, accompanied by six other ladies, begging your illustrious person to withdraw the order which had been given to burn the statues in the public square, and you so kindly granted it to me. But you did not wear this garb. No, sir, I was in disguise. And why are you wearing this dress once more? At your command to present ourselves in our total dress. Of what nationality are you? French. Her mother Eliza's father was French. How many sisters have you under your charge? Twelve professed nuns. How much money of the dowries have you? Not one penny. What did you do with it? It's been confiscated. Do your sisters keep the law of not wearing the habits? Yes, sir, apparently. What do you mean by apparently? I mean that we wear the habit inside and a secular dress on top. He roared with laughter and asked, Are you not warm and uncomfortable? Very much, sir. And what do you and your companions intend to do? To continue this life of slavery? Why don't you and your companions marry? Because we have professed to the contrary. But of what benefit will you be to your country? To pray and sacrifice ourselves for the salvation of souls. Do you think you will save me? Yes, sir, if you cooperate with the grace of God. It seemed this touched his soul from Mother's account because he paused and looked out the window for quite a while. Then he turned back and asked, Well, do you really think I'll be saved? Yes, sir, if you believe. Believe in what? In God and keep his commandments. My goodness, you speak Spanish fluently, he said, changing the unpleasant subject. She was sentenced to be exiled along with other Carmelites. They had 24 hours to leave the country. Mother Elias heard the sentence with joy, but admitted to the judge they were without assent to their name. And acting on his promise of two weeks before, she asked permission to stay in the city a few months while they gathered the necessary money to leave the country. He consented, promising that no one would molest them and adding that if they could not obtain the sum, he would give it. Four hours had passed since Mother Elias had taken leave of her agonizing sisters. Her return was a cause for great thanksgiving. Mother succeeded in obtaining money for the fa- from the families of some of the nuns to take part of the community as far as Cuba. The rest found refuge and decided to trust in divine providence to provide. 
On October 24, 1914, disguised in wigs, bonnets, and secular clothes over their wool habits, Mother Elias and the younger sisters boarded a train bound for Mexico City, and from there they took another train to Veracruz. During the journey, Mother Elias had the statue of the infant Jesus. It was a bambino that had come originally to Cuerotaro in 1803, and they, she was taking it with them. So he, as, as a disguise, she had it wrapped up like a baby in a blanket and all that. She was carrying it as if she was a mother. There were revolutionary soldiers on the train, and one of them was suspicious that the baby never cried. He says, that baby is being awful quiet. He started over towards mother. At that moment, the statue of the infant began to wail like a living child, and tears fell from its eyes. The soldiers left mother alone. From Veracruz, they took a Spanish ship to Cuba. In Havana, the Carmelites graciously hosted them. Mother Elias met Monsignor Kelly, who's the president of the Catholic Extension Society here in the United States, who was writing a book on the persecution in Mexico. He offered the money to bring the rest of the community to Cuba if Mother Elias had the courage to undertake the return journey. So a few weeks after arriving in Cuba, Mother Elias returned to Mexico to rescue the older nuns of her community who were in danger of starvation, imprisonment, or worse. When she reached Mexico City, Mother Elias contacted a former postulant, Sister Angela, and they took, they took her as a companion for the rest of the trip. Not far out of Mexico City, the train was stopped, and the two of them, along with other passengers, were removed from the train and taken to a prison. The two nuns remained for more than a week in a crowded prison cell with 12 inches of water on the floor. Every night the whole group was summoned for questioning. The only ones who returned to the cell were those who were not condemned to immediate execution. When the two sisters' turn had come, they were taken out to a courtyard to be tied, blindfolded, and shot. Mother Elias begged to be left without the blindfold, and the soldiers, while tying them up, acquiesced. A company of revolutionary soldiers were drawn up then in front of the two religious who were now kneeling. The order was given to shoot. Interiorly, Mother called upon the little flower to deliver them. She interiorly offered a somewhat skeptical prayer. Little Therese, if you are a saint, as some people say you are, then deliver us, and I promise to found a monastery in your honor. Both nuns heard the discharge of the guns, and the two nuns sank to the ground and were left for dead. St. Therese intervened. About 2 a.m., Mother Elias regained consciousness. She would later say, I knew I had been shot, but I found myself neither in heaven nor in purgatory, so I realized I was still in this veil of tears. Sister Angela was also still alive, and they worked to free each other using their teeth. A guard discovered them at this time and aimed his firearm for the final coup de grace, but Mother said, don't shoot us. Our Blessed Mother will punish you if you do. What you must do is get us out of here. The guard expressed concern for his own safety, but then in something that's very much like the Acts of the Apostles of St. Peter, he yields to an unexplainable impulse and leads them out to the fields. As the two sisters begin walking along, not knowing where they're going, they're frightened by the sound of hoofbeats. A rider reins up, and asked them what they're doing at that time of the night. And Mother told them as much as she dared of their escape from prison and that they wanted to catch a train from Mexico City. It turned out that the horseman was a priest who often came to absolve those being led to execution. He said that the horse knew its way to the depot, and if they gave the horse its head, he'd get them there. When they said they didn't know how to ride, he helped them out and told them, don't be afraid, look at the heavens and not at the earth, 
and you won't get dizzy and fall. It was daybreak when they arrived at the depot, just in time to catch the train for Mexico City. Their first act there was to walk the five miles to the shrine of Our Lady of Guadalupe to give thanks, and then when they got there, they went in on their knees. As Mother could speak a little English, they chose an English hotel for greater safety that night. In their room, they finally examined themselves to discover if they'd been wounded by the shots. The sisters found blood on their clothes, but no wounds. St. Therese had rescued them in a miraculous way. It's very much like some of the stories you read in the martyrology of the early saints. The next day, they took the train to Aguas Calientes and met up with Mother Teresa and the rest of the community, gathered together, and promptly set off for Cuba, arriving on January 8, 1915. They spent the next five to six months with the Carmelites of Havana. While in Havana, Mother Elias and Mother Teresa approached various bishops, including the bishops of Cuba and Puerto Rico, asking to be received in their diocese, but with no success. So they obtained permission from Rome to take the community of the United States. And in spring, they traveled to New Orleans, taking up housing with various religious communities in that city. In November 1915, Mother Elias and her community were invited by the bishop of Grand Rapids, Michigan, to establish their community there the Carmel of Our Lady of Guadalupe. By 1919, the Carmel was full and the money foundations began. Slao, Mexico in 1919, Buffalo, New York in 1920. In fact, the Carmel of St. Therese in Buffalo, New York is a fulfillment of the promise made in front of that Mexican firing squad six years earlier when Mother Elias had prayed, Little Therese, if you are a saint, as some people say, then deliver us and I promise I will found a monastery in your honor. The chapel of the Buffalo Carmel was the very first one in the world to be, have the little flower as its titular saint because it was officially dedicated to St. Therese on the very day of her canonization, May 7, 1925. You can't get any faster than that. The Carmel in Alexandria, South Dakota, is a foundation for the Buffalo Carmel. In 1923, Mother Elias went to Schenectady, New York, found another Carmel there. Grand Rapids continued to send out foundations, Detroit in 1926, Cuyacan, Mexico in 1940, Littleton, Colorado in 1947, Traverse, Michigan in 1950, and Iron Mountain, Michigan in 1950. Eventually, Mother Elias returned to the Grand Rapids Carmel. She died there February 28, 1943. One more interesting anecdote. When Mother Elias and her community were being harbored by the Carmelites in Havana, another Carmelite community from Mexico, the Carmel of Tulanchingo, from Hidalgo State also sought refuge there in that Carmel. That community later turned to Me- returned to Mexico, but under the persecution of Caius, they had to flee again. So the mother superior to Lincingo Carmel contacted a friend she had made in Havana, Mother Elias. Mother Elias then got in contact with some Carmelite fathers she knew who had fled the Mexican persecution themselves. With the help of Mother Elias and others who defrayed most of the costs, in March 1928, the Carmelites of Tulancingo arrived in a house across the street from a parish staffed by those Carmelite fathers. Uh, the parish is Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish in Dallas. Over the next few years, they made several moves. Until 1952, they arrived in their current location on Flower Street. That's why there's a Carmel here. Let's close. The saints... Show us the gospel in practice. We started with a quote from St. Therese. I love to read the lives of the saints very much. The account of their heroic deeds inflames my courage and spurs me on to imitate them. 
we've just considered some of the heroic deeds of a truly amazing woman and spiritual daughter of St. Therese, Mother Elias of the Blessed Sacrament. Today, let's ask St. Therese and Mother Elias to obtain for us a fearless, burning love for our crucified Lord, a love that is rooted in unshakable hope and an immovable faith. Ask them today for a fearless, burning love for our crucified Lord, rooted in unshakable hope and a faith firm and as immovable as a rock.